Children who have been through the family courts will commonly tell you, nobody listened to me. There was always another agenda. I was too scared to say what was happening because I always knew that there was an agenda. I'm Lee Matthews and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. As somebody who has spent their entire career working to protect the rights of vulnerable children, today's episode was challenging to record. While we know that children's rights are violated daily, we don't expect that harm to be caused by the very institutions that were created to protect them. Australia's family court was established in the 1970s, underpinned by a naive belief that if couples could separate quickly and easily, complicated things like family violence would perhaps disappear. 46 years later, we are faced with an institution that has and continues to cause irreparable harm to children and their families. The Australian Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was damning and resulted in the National Principles for Child Safe Organisations, which were designed to guide how institutions should protect and safeguard children from harm. Sadly, despite being an Australian government institution, the Family Court does not follow these principles. I'm joined today by the wonderful Camilla Nelson, co-author of the new book, Broken, a searing account of how Australia's family law system is failing. The book explores the complexities and failures of the family courts through the stories of children and parents whose lives have been shattered by them. A warning, this episode contains discussion of content which may be difficult for some listeners to process. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Camilla. Hello, Lee. Thank you for coming. I'm going to start off and ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Oh, that's such a big question. It's, it's, a, it's a thorny question. I've occasionally been told that I'm a, a little bit strident or ferocious and that horrible word moralistic. But when I think of doing good, I'm afraid I'm terribly cynical because I often think of hypocrisy in relation to that. And maybe that's, you know, having been a journalist, often uh, what's being said is really what's not being said. It's in the subtext. I wonder about people who announce themselves as doing good. It's like a truth claim good, I think. When people say this is the truth, it usually means they've got an agenda. Yeah, you know, you're kind of touching on a key point is what's motivating the doing good? Is it truly altruism? And and is anyone truly ever 100% motivated by altruism? Yeah, a good question. I don't think so. I mean, I would love to think so. I, I would honestly, honestly love to think so, you know, and, and certainly I question myself, but I actually think that it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. You know, why am I doing this? Why do I care what's coming out of it? It's important to, to keep sight of it. And, yeah, I don't think that anyone is truly altruistic. I think we do and say things because in some sense it makes us feel good. Academics, academics trade in status and why status makes you feel good. So, yeah, I, I think that the goodest, <laughs> can I say that, the goodest people 
are actually the people who are the most uh, reflexive and they are the people who question themselves. Absolutely. I have to say I, I agree with you on that. I think this hero worshipping that sometimes happens and, and how people who are, I guess, placed on pedestals as heroes or, or good people take that on and it becomes their identity and they keep trading in that status and building on it. And I, I think, you know, the ability to actually step back and ask yourself whether what you are doing is genuinely good and what the motivations are is a really key part of, I guess, growing and, and evolving as a human. Yeah, and I think, you know, the only people who deserve to be put on that pedestal you mentioned are the people who are deeply uncomfortable and will have nothing to do with the pedestal. It's, yeah, I don't know, some some kind of paradox. Yeah. So I'm interested, you talked about um, growing up Catholic. I'm interested to understand how your notion of what is good has evolved over time. Yeah, look, the Catholic thing is really peculiar. It's funny to put it out there immediately in in a context because it's not usually something that I bring up. But, But when you're being honest with yourself and you ask me to be honest about good, I have to say that I grew up and and was socialized in a certain ethics which was liberal catholicism or sort of progressive left-wing catholicism stepping onto neo-marxism where where you had a very strong communitarian uh, socialistic common good and even as you move away you grow up and you think oh my gosh the rest the rest of the world doesn't think like that when you're being honest with yourself, when you, you, you know, sound off of, uh, against someone for being, a, you know, I don't know, a right-wing libertarian, it's tapping into a gut feeling that you imbibed in childhood about what's the criteria, if you like, for, in inverted commas, being good. Yeah, yeah, what is right or wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. Camilla, We're here to talk about your book, Broken, which explores the complexities of Australia's family courts through the stories of children and parents whose lives have been shattered by them. What led you here? Is this a book you always planned to write? And do you see hope after writing it? Or is it something that has made you you think differently about things? I was hopeful in writing the book. And I won't go straight there, but I just watched the new promotional video for the new family court and I was horrified. That was Scotty from marketing. I won't go there right now. My co-author, Catherine Mumbay, knocked on my door one day and, and she said, Camille, you've really got to write this book. And I'm like, no, no, I'd rather jump off a cliff. The other side of that is, is desperation and despair, you know, no. And, and then I, I sort of thought about it and I thought, you know, I think she's right. And then when uh, Pauline Hansen was uh, appointed deputy chair of the Joint Select Committee, a fringe, radical, right-wing persona, so far removed from the kind of mainstream values of right and wrong and doing good and treating children, I rang Catherine and in very non-professorial language told her why expletive, expletive. (laughs) Uh, yes, we have to do this. So it really needed to be written. It was something that had to be said. 
it's trying to put a sense there and in the public domain of how the family court is experienced by the people who are subject to it because the very people who are the most subject to this system are the people who are silenced and particularly children. We know that terrible things happen in the dark, but the only people who are ever asked to account for what's going on are the people who, I'm sorry, but are incentivized to say, there's nothing to see here. Yeah, I want to pick up on quite a few of those themes. But first, for our overseas listeners and, and people that don't know or haven't experienced the family court system, can you give us an overview of, of the history of it? How did it come about and what was the political environment in, in which it emerged? Oh, look, you know, the, the family court was, you know, famously born in hope. It was when it came into being the most progressive um, family law in, you know, let's say the common law world. And it was set up with this idea that if there were marriages that had irretrievably broken down and relationships which had irretrievably broken down, the parties deserve to be able to part with dignity Without the glare of media publicity, that there was a great talk at the time, and that's where Section 121 comes, of uh, divorces being the fodder for the Sunday tabloids every week. And also that all the problems such as domestic abuse and child abuse would simply disappear and dissolve once people could separate. So it was naive. Particularly, you know, when you think about the 70s, I mean, it was an extremely unequal society. I mean, the gains, yes, it was the, it was the time of women's lib, as it was called back then, and the revolution. But the revolution came because of the inequity. This is only sort of a hop, step and a jump from when women became theoretically eligible for the same pay as men. And I, I would use the word theoretically. Um, because, as we know, the, the gender pay gap persists. And so I think that there was a huge amount of naivety at the time. In a project that I'm doing right now for the Whitlam Institute, I'm trawling through some of those old debates and I have this terrible, uncanny feeling, so this picture in your mind, mind's eye. There's a bunch of men sitting around in the room Okay, deciding what's best for women and children. I just like so far I've found one woman in the whole process. And economic equality it is intrinsic to any kind of other sort of social justice or, you know, kind of welfare discourse. Women particularly stay in these relationships because economically they cannot find a path out. Yes, for other sorts of many, many other reasons, but the economic is part of this. And so these naive debates at the time about how we're going to empower women to be, in inverted commas, economically rehabilitated 
through the divorce law. Yeah, I've got economically rehabilitated in my own book. Um, yeah, it was very naive, but it was hopeful. And I think that it was a huge improvement on the divorce laws that, that came before it. And I don't think that we should lose sight of that. Before um, the passage of the Family Law Act, a judge could order a woman home to her abusive husband. So it was born out of hope with, you know, high ideals and somewhat of a simplistic and naive notion that it would solve what we know to be very, very complex issues that we're still not solving today. We are now at a point where this month the family court has merged with the Federal Circuit Court, and that's a move that has been fairly strenuously opposed by legal and family violence experts. Why did this happen and and why is it so controversial? I think that the story that doesn't get told about the court merger is that the court merger merely gives formal recognition to the status quo. The reality is that the Federal Circuit Court, which was founded in uh, by Howard in 1999 um, as the Magistrates Court, has progressively taken over 90% of the family law caseload in domestic violence cases and all but the most obvious child abuse cases. All of those cases will be heard in the Federal Circuit Court and have been for 20 years. Okay, so this is a fait accompli, the rebranding of the court. And I'm going to use that language because I watched to my horror the promotional videos for, for the new court that gives scant recognition to the reality of, of people's lives, the, the sorts of matters that come before the court. Up to 85% of cases that come before the court are domestic abuse cases. At least half of them involve serious safety concerns and a huge number are physical violence. But, of course, we know the most dangerous form of violence that's connected to things like intimate partner homicide is coercive and controlling violence, which the law does not recognise and struggles to understand. That is the kind of gender-based violence that comes out of inequality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those stats and, and reading the book, it... it kind of strikes me that the court can often be used as a further tool to facilitate coercive control, financial abuse, and in fact, a large amount of the cases are involving complex property and, and um, asset distributions where children are, are kind of seen as part of that rather than as individual rights holders. Yeah, look, you know, a huge amount of the court's time, and this is also goes back to, you know, what happened to the family court. The caseload in the family court traditionally leading up to the merger was 50% property-only cases, and they were, were really complex uh, property, you know, cases with tax liabilities, all of this sort of stuff that, that took up a huge amount of the court's time. They heard also appeals and the Magellan List, which is serious child abuse. The reality for most families facing domestic abuse, that they couldn't afford the family court. The family court was the Rolls Royce, okay, and then the um, Federal Circuit Court is sort of like Holden Justice. Look, 
The family court started off well. Elizabeth Evatt, the first Chief Justice, was a woman, which is extraordinary. She also led the Royal Commission on Human Relationships, which was a radical initiative to get people talking about the things that concerned them in families and, and those sorts of things. I think that the family court bombings uh, changed all of that despite the very slender gains that, that women had and children had made um, under the law. The family court bombings at the time were reported much the way, same way that we still tend to report domestic violence. The media recognised that murder's wrong, but they said, what's wrong with the family court that would drive a man to such extremes? And, of course, the first thing that the government did is turn around and and, uh, send letters to the men's rights groups at the time, of which there were very many, saying, we want to listen to your concerns, what can we do to help? And then I think that really it was somewhat backwards from there. Interestingly enough, one of the first biggest amendments to the Family Law Act was the scrapping of the provision that a court should not make an order contrary to the wishes of a child of 14 and over unless there are serious concerns. It was an attempt to to say you need to listen to children and a sense to rule a line and compel judges to say this is the line where you will very, very seriously listen to children. There were other children's provisions got tossed out, but that, that was the one that they stuck to all the way through the parliament, this idea that we will make you listen to children at 14. And the people who don't get heard of court, of course, in family courts, are the people who have most at stake, and that is children. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind the intersections of like the law as an industry and it being a predominantly paternalistic industry and approach to children and how they are viewed as individual rights holders that have voices that deserve to be heard, that are able to articulate them. And then kind of that intersection, which I'm interested in, you know, you talked about the men's rights groups and political influence. So gender politics, how how have those kind of those two things morphed and and become part of the, the family court environment that we see today? Yeah, look, The biggest problem, this is taking it back to children in particular, is that the family law does not really recognise children's rights. It takes a couple of notional ideas or one particular notional idea from the Convention on the Rights of the Child and gives it lip service. So we have a set of best interest factors and at the top there are two tiers in these factors that dictate how a judge will think about a case. And at the top is what we call the twin pillars, okay, where the judge will uh, consider the child's right to have a relationship with both parents, okay, and the child's right to safety. On the one hand, pitting the child's safety against the parents' desires. And on the other hand, we are assuming that children's rights are the same as parents' rights. So what you have there is is what you'd call a kind of a proxy right. What is allegedly the child's right to have a relationship actually is a proxy right. It's, It's a proxy expression for parents' rights. 
So it's not really the child's right at all. A, a child has a right to a relationship, but in a domestic abuse case, the child, a mature child even, does not have the right to refuse the relationship. Which is astounding and not centred in, in children's rights to have a, a voice in decisions that affect them. Yeah, and, and Leah, you would know, child protection workers will always tell you allowing the child to speak is just a mechanism, is one of the strongest mechanisms that we have for ensuring the child's safety. And yet the, the structures of the family court, what goes on in the family court mostly goes on behind the scenes. Yes, we have these trials, okay, which are something else to, to watch, but much of the determination goes on behind the scenes with, with various functionaries and paid experts and this sort of thing. Children who have been through the family courts will commonly tell you, nobody listened to me. There was always another agenda. I was too scared to say what was happening because I always knew that there was an agenda depending on who I was talking to. I did not feel safe. That last one is the key. We know that if children feel safe, they will speak up. But if they don't feel safe, they won't. Yeah. And it's a profoundly serious concern. And because there's no scrutiny or accountability built into the system, I mean, you, you know, very recently they've made recommendations that, that they're going to actually regulate who gets to be an expert. But in reality, in the adversarial system, we have what's called a single expert witness. No one other than the judge and the lawyers can read uh, the expert witness's report. Um, it's not subject to any kind of, say, a peer review process, which, as we know, in uh, expertise, peer review, the capacity to demonstrate your outcomes to a panel of your peers and to have them upheld, that that is the gold standard for expertise. I find it astonishing that in the courts you have a single expert. No one is allowed to read or challenge the report and the only people who get to see it are people who are simply not qualified because they're not the, the, the peers of the expert. The peers of the expert are people in the field with the same level of qualification. Okay, so a judge actually is not the peer of a psychiatrist. A lawyer and even a senior counsel is not the peer of a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And much of what barristers tell you about the expert is subject to interrogation in the courtroom, you know, by their expertise, the barrister's expertise. Um, and what is the barrister's expertise? Well, the barrister's expertise is a kind of a trial plan. And the trial plan and the way so many trials proceed is one side claims the mother's the Madonna and the other side claims the mother is crazy. Okay, and, and this pretty much is the pro forma of the majority of family court trials. And the barrister will say that's what the research says. And you feel like saying, well, you know, I'm a professor. I've never seen any research that says anything remotely like that. Gender stereotypes and gender narratives are the stock in trade of the trial in very similar ways to sexual assault trials. So it's secrecy, it's lack of transparency, lack of accountability. And look, it's a place that is simply not safe for children. 
No, it seems very much that way. You, you've spoken of cases where a judge does believe that there's sexual and, and or physical abuse of a child occurring by a parent, yet orders are made for that child to have direct supervised contact with their abuser. Whose rights are being protected here? Well, this goes back to what I said about the, the twin pillars. The law's a system. It has nothing to do with justice. Judges and lawyers are masters of detail. So the scheme that they've been given is the twin pillars. On the one hand, the proxy rights of the the parent, the right to a relationship with both parents, and on the other hand, a right to safety. So then the judge thinks to themselves, well, you know, I've preserved the relationship and uh, the child will not get sexually assaulted if they're being supervised by a paid person. And it's as far as it goes. And, and they think, therefore, they've satisfied the criteria, the primary criteria of the child's best interests as it's been defined in the legislation. So they work within the child's best interest factors that have been given to them. And those child's best interest factors are, in fact, the the products of political discourse. They are the products of decades of lobbying by men's rights activists and also by women's rights activists and children's rights activists. I mean, actually, I kind of wonder sometimes, so who are the children's rights activists? Because you don't hear from them so, so much. A determination like that within the schema set out by the legislation, the judge feels they've done good. I'm going to use your word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as someone that's spent a large part of my career working in in this space of of child protection and safeguarding, I'm just absolutely astounded by the absolute lack of transparency, accountability, protection of children's rights the lack of mechanisms for complaint, the actively harming of children and families. And it gets me thinking about the fact that as a country, we have reckoned with the issue of institutional abuse through the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission uncovered the horrific abuse of thousands and thousands of children at the hands of more than 4,000 institutions And one of the outcomes of that was this mechanism or this tool called the National Principles for Child Safe Organisations. And it was designed to prevent and and respond to child abuse in organisations. And the National Principles say that one of the key features of an organisation that protects children is that it considers their safety and well-being at the centre of thought, values and actions, and that children's voices are considered. So it strikes me as incredibly problematic that the very institution, our government, that created the principles is blatantly allowing them to be violated in another one of its institutions. How do we have this disconnect? Why is this able to continue? Isn't that the huge question? Isn't that the startling question? And it's funny, in in editing the book, there were wonderful lawyers who gave me their time pro bono but at one stage it was brought to my attention by several lawyers that the Royal Commission does not apply to the family court. 
not. It was like this boundary riding. And I'm like, oh, gosh, that really says it all. People at the time of the Royal Commission tried to have its mandate extended to look at the family court for all of these reasons, and they refused. There is a problem that lawyers can't investigate other lawyers. They didn't want to have one legal entity investigating a court system because, of course, court systems rely on public confidence in their capacity to administer justice. Having a royal commission into a court system is just a dramatic undermining of of probably what politicians would call the rule of law. Isn't that the purpose of a royal commission, to investigate things that we thought were... were Yeah, no. No, the whole thing is hypocritical. And that, I guess, is where, where I was trying to go. The whole thing is frightening. The lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, the lack of a mechanism to hold people to account. Judges are appointed for life. There have historically been a couple of judges who have been stood down, but there's no one to judge the judges. And the judges have have not been good at controlling the kind of apparatus of the court or the culture. And I think judges are actually oblivious to it because when you're sitting on the bench, you only see the tip of the iceberg. And so their perceptions, their cultural background sort of determines what they see and what they don't. I think there needs to be a a Royal Commission, but I think it needs to be survivor-led and also the important people who need to be able to speak are children. I think it's interesting with the Royal Commission that they only believed child abuse victims once they became adults. And this is a central problem also that you're confronting in this culture of the family court, that they listen not to the children who have been abused, but when they become adult survivors. And, of course, we know some of them don't survive. Yeah, the paternalism of even the approach to the Royal Commission. Why aren't children's voices valued? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we, we have, and this goes back to, you know, the good problem. We have this ethical uh, framework for thinking about children under these ideas about the child is vulnerable, the child is in need of care, the child is innocent, we must protect the child. Okay, but these very thing mechanisms that we are putting in place to, in inverted commas, protect the child are actually functioning to expose the child to harm. So... We need to rethink the law and the culture of the law needs to rethink the way it thinks about children. And I think that a substantive or rights-based approach to children, which we absolutely do not see, it's the opposite of what we say in the family court. The family court is paternalistic. A rights-based approach that listens to children, that empowers children and does something actually to make them safe. Just going back to this idea of a possible royal commission and and the fact that we need to hear from children who are currently children experiencing this system but also who, who are now adults, what does it look like to actually really centre the rights and voices of children in a family court environment. If you could say, here's how to do it, here's what would be best, what would it look like? The first thing, you have to abolish the the adversarial system for, for family law reasons. I think you have to get 
rid of this medieval claptrap around the law of having an adversarial trial presided over by a judge where the structure of the law escalates conflict in that it actually simply mirrors the logic of an abusive relationship and is also largely predicated on the capacity to pay, okay, for representation. Abolish the adversarial system for family court purposes. Ideally, I would look at establishing real limits to litigation in in a way like Lionel Murphy did. You, You know, I'd be willing to consider, we say at this age, the court will not litigate over a child as if the child were property. The whole logic of litigation needs to shift. The child's best interest factors need to be rewritten. The Australian Law Reform Commission did a good job of that, but they've they've been thrown out by the the government already. And we need to focus on understanding that the reason these people are in court is because of the abuse. In an ideal world, you'd mediate or arbitrate them out. I think if you had a multidisciplinary panel, people who without that sort of adversarial theatre of the court can quickly get to the heart of a case to create an environment that supports children. Ironically, the court has to be mature enough to engage with children. At the moment, they say children are not mature enough to engage with us. Or they say the court is so toxic and dangerous, children can't come. It's like, well, okay, grow up, change it. Um, to make it a safe place for children where children's concerns are heard. As part of that, I I think that particularly child survivors need to be able to talk to inform the justice system about their needs, wants and interests and the way that children and young people, we are also talking about young people here, adolescents, need to be empowered in that process. So two obvious things, abolish the adversarial system for family matters and rewrite the child's best interest factors, okay? But that's the tip of the iceberg. There is an entire culture that needs to shift. And what's happening at the moment is that they've rebranded the court. It's the same old system with a few new names and a new website. Yeah, and a new shiny marketing video. Uh, Camilla, I want to draw the, the lens back out to you. Who would you say is your greatest influence in in your work or in this idea of doing good through your work? Oh, my gosh. My mind actually just kind of goes blank. Uh, You know, (laughs) I haven't thought much about doing good through, through my work, to tell you the truth. I have a huge admiration for a large number of the investigative journalists who have gone in there to tell these sorts of stories, Um, people like Jess Hill, but some brilliant reporting, particularly from the ABC and other entities. People who, despite the odds, and it is the hardest court to report, have gone in there. We know bad things happen in the dark. It's a bit of a cliche, I know. Somebody's got to tell the story. When journalism is at its best, they get to tell somebody else's story in the hope that something will change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
This one's a bit of a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And, and it's something that people of future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Oh, it's going to be climate change. Yeah. It also comes back to children, this issue, because we're mortgaging the, the future of other people, of children. In a recent decision, the Environment Minister overturned a court decision that told them that they had a duty of care to children when they made environmental decisions. And that's actually been thrown out the window. I mean, it's an epic court decision that, that actually recognised the impact that climate change has on children. But it does seem that politicians think that, okay, we can disregard that because they are children. So it does come back to some of these same issues in, in a sense that propelled the book. Absolutely. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? What would it be? Oh, look, I would shrink into silence. I honestly, I, I honestly would. <laughs> and that is also okay. Camilla, a, a bit of a, a strange question in a time of three months of lockdown for you, but where's your favourite place on earth? Oh, my favourite places on earth, I was just probably telling, they're always places where I am yet to go. You know, from a child, because I never got out of Australia until literally I could afford to pay my own way, you know, what I wanted to do was go places and see the world. And I, I did those epic things that you do when you're young and you travel across China, Mongolia and South America, you know, all of these sorts of things. But I think it's still that sense of awe you know, of real wonder of going somewhere else and somewhere new and finding something out. Yeah, so that that's still my favourite place. Yeah, I have to agree with you. You've just described my, my oh, place really? about that. Absolutely, absolutely. It's my favourite thing to do is to be going somewhere new. Yeah. Camilla, what book are you reading now? I am teaching and lecturing and it does seem that everything you read is actually work. And I have been reading the proceedings of the Senate Standing Committee on Constitutional and Legal Affairs from the 1970s. <laughs> so some light reading. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of like that's a bit of like reading. I, you know, I should be saying that I'm reading, I don't know. No, it's perfect. It's it's representative <laughs> of what you do. Because it's, yeah. And do you listen to podcasts at all? I do listen to podcasts. And, you know, I, I know this is not a plug. I'm going to start listening to, to your, <laughs> to your <laughs> no. podcast. No, no. Curious what you, what are some favourites of yours? There's some fantastic journalistic investigations that have been turned into podcasts, which, I, I mean, obviously I'm thinking Teacher's Pet, I think, was a phenomenal podcast. And also, I mean, both the journalism and the investigation, but also the way in which it's been put together as a work of art, if you want to say, that the crafting of some of these, these new podcasts are just, I, I am in awe because they are so well done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Camilla, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing to have an understanding of these bigger themes that surround the family court and family law, particularly in Australia, and to understand, you know, and I think you've pointed it out really well, that 
everything's kind of coming back and, and linking into this idea of listening to children and centering them at the core of all the decisions that we make. And you linking it back to climate change, I think, is a really important thing to do because our systems and our processes do not consider children. And we are responsible for making decisions that are going to affect their very ability to survive in the world. So really important, big theme coming out there, I think. Thank you for your work. It's so important. I know you don't see it as as doing good, but I think bringing to light these issues and helping people that haven't been part of this system or are not impacted by it and helping them understand it is, is a really important thing because I think that's how we, we get change happening, the more people that know. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Lee. Where can people find you and your work if they want to, to know more? Oh, you know, probably on the university website. I often write for The Conversation, which is probably the URL that I tend to to link to on my Twitter page. Oh, you can get me on Twitter. And, uh, of course, you can write me an email at my university because that's on the web page too. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Camilla. Okay. Thanks so much, Lee, for having me on the program. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.